our book, Twin Peaks Unwrap the Book, which you can get at bluerosemag.com. It is $19.99. What we are told could be a limited time, but supply is very limited. I know I say this every week, but I'm not making it up because we got the count and it's getting close to being done. So get your copy now. It's only $19.99. I don't know how long that price will last. So go to bluerosemag.com today and get it for the holiday. Get it for someone else that might really like it. Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant. And beside me is... Brian Kosaska. Hey, Brian. Who else do we have here? Hi, yeah. This is uh, John Thorne. I'm happy to join you guys again. It's been a while. Hey, friends. Josh Mitten or JB Mitten, if you've read any of my stuff. Great to be here. Love you guys. Good to see you again. Hey, this is Joel from Lost in the Movies. Uh, Looking forward to discussing this episode. I think it's my first since the season one finale with you guys. And the unseen players. Hi, I'm Schaefer the Dark Lord from the Pink Room Burlesque. And I will be playing Special Agent Dale Cooper, Philip Gerard, Sheriff Harry S. Truman, Deputy Tommy Hawk Hill, Doc Hayward, Benjamin Horn, Maddie Ferguson, The Log Lady, and The Giant. So this is a community rewatch. We are going over what I call episode 14, which could be season two, episode seven, The Lonely Lonely Souls. And uh, this is a big one. This is the reveal of who killed Laura Palmer. Big stuff. Big stuff. And this is like, I think this is Lynch's last last episode before the end of season two. Like, so it's kind of like, I feel like he kind of steps away for a while after this. This was the last episode Lynch directed before the final episode of season two. You know, who knows exactly what the history was. He might have thought he was done with Twin Peaks at that point. But, you know, I don't quite know the history of the last episode and whether they brought him back because they knew the show was in trouble and they thought maybe he could give it a boost. I think the intent here was always for him to direct this episode. And at some point, Gordon Cole will come back to kiss Shelly. So he does, he does, <laughs> he does get, take some part in the show again, but. Uh, Definitely, yeah. And so this starts off with uh, Gordon Cole saying goodbye. Uh, you know Lynch is back in town. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he's literally on screen, but as a director, all of his episodes open with shots, except maybe episode nine with him and Albert eating breakfast. That one, I didn't realize was a Lynch episode right away it was a little more understated but in general you know right away when he's directing and it, it, he does have that style of just wide shots like most directors you know you start with a kind of establishing shot and then you'll get close-ups of people and there's no close-ups in there which is i mean television i guess it's faster too you you get the shot and you move on that could be part of it because he may have known that the time he was going to need was going to be devoted for the fourth act and the very complicated fourth act that was you know that had to be choreographed and all the things that happened there. I know we're going to get to that. And yet you're right, that opening scene in this episode is just a master shot. It's just one shot with all the characters essentially lined up, right? They're all lined up. I think they're drinking yeah. coffee and, uh, and they're saying their goodbyes. And in all likelihood, it was easy to shoot that. It was quick to shoot that, right? He, he blocked it. You got the character, mm. the actors in place. Yeah. dialogue was there and it was done fast I, that's my guess yeah. um he probably had just a certain amount of time to do the entire episode he may have been budgeting his time so that he'd have a little more to spend on the on the final act one of the things that hit me when i was watching that scene is how great of a picture it was it's just mm-hmm. like if you could just take a photo of those right. people right next to each other in that scene it was a, just a really nice visual emotional moment typical lynch right you totally frame it and put it on your wall or something. Just, yeah. <laughs> there's an interview it might actually be in john's book that i'm getting it from where somebody talks about how lynch would fall behind on the schedule and then fall behind and fall behind and everyone be worried one time he drove around until he saw a license plate with the right numbers, he wouldn't come into work until then. <laughs> so they lost like half a day of shooting. <laughs> and then suddenly he'd get to a scene, he'd put the camera in a corner, stage everybody, and boom, knock it out. And suddenly he'd be back on schedule after like one or two of those. Yeah. It might have been either mm-hmm. wrapped in plastic or um, reflections where, where I read that. But I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess reflections because I don't remember that specifically. But I've heard... I've- or he's like certainly the license plate story. I've heard <laughs> and he's so well known for taking like one or two shots or something. Like some directors want to do several takes and he's like, oh, we got it. Moving on. <laughs> well, 
I saw an interview recently with Mary Sweeney, who I hope we talk about a good deal on this episode, because this is the only Twin Peaks episode that she edited, and it's the beginning of her collaboration with David Lynch as an editor. But I saw an interview with her where they're asking her about director styles, and somebody brings up that Werner Herzog spoke to a group of students and told them, you should think of every scene as if you can do it in one shot. Figure it out in one shot, Mm. and then, Mm. you know, I don't know if he said this part, but I would say, you know, then maybe break it down into more if you want, but know how you could shoot it in one shot if you had to and stage everything that way. So it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. And then we get to the Great Northern and uh, there's sailors bouncing balls and we have the one-armed man. I think he's looking for Bob there and they're just bringing people to him and and then Benjamin Horn comes in and... uh, he kind of like collapses on the floor. And it was a great scene. I mean, the bouncing yeah. balls, you know, I, I was listening to it in, uh, in molten you know, 4K surround sound. I'm just like, this is crazy. I mean, it really was overwhelming just audibly. Great scene. It is just another one of the curious conventions that's taking place at the Great Northern, right? And there always seems to be some <laughs> group that's that's come in to use the Great Northern for their, for their meetings. And... Uh, mm. And then so this time we've got we've got this group for whatever reason they're bouncing balls. I'm not quite sure what the, <laughs> right. other than I think Lynch liked the the audio of that, the sound effect of that. And it you know, he does this with his visuals too, where he wants to convey attention. He wants to convey something. Well, you'll see in some films, suddenly there's just sort of a burst of flame in the background, or there's a a, a flash of light to sort of convey this, whatever the, the, the feeling is of the scene. And I think he was doing that with the sound here. That bouncing ball sound is very stressful if it's, if it's you know, the way he does it. And clearly, Philip Gerard, Mike, you know, he, he basically, he can't take it. You know, he, he falls apart. And that just adds to that, that feeling in that scene. Do you guys think that Mike slash, I guess he's Mike at this point, do you think he seems a little different in this episode from the previous one? Because I have some thoughts on that, but I want to hear what other people think about it too. I think whenever Lynch is directing, the characters seem more heightened than they do in other episodes. I don't know if you're comparing it to potentially other Lynch episodes. I'd have to go and look at that. But No, to the previous, I, when Mike first comes out of his shell, to so to speak. Okay, yeah. In, or not first, the but the second time when he comes out at the sheriff's station, how he performs that and then how he is here. I just thought I it was have to because he didn't have his medicine still, like, right? He still doesn't have No, his but after that, after he takes his medicine and he's Mike, I see a little bit of a difference but Hmm. to me he seems a little more distressed and disoriented in this episode both the scene where he's at the station he's drinking his coffee versus when he Mm -hmm. at the end of episode 13 he's very like theatrical in a way like he suddenly Mm -hmm. emerges as this magnificent figure almost kind of filling the room with his presence and lynch is there for that scene as an actor so obviously you know he didn't tell leslie lincoln gladder oh no no don't do this but for whatever reason, when he's directing him, he seems almost more like somebody sort of wandering the streets who you'd see and maybe mm. kind of worry, oh, is something going on with that guy? You know, like he just has a different <clears throat> presence to me in the scenes he's in. You know, now that you mentioned that, Joel, the whole scene up to the reveal of who the killer is feels like there's this like growing you know, emergence of something. And and as I was reading through John's piece on the white horse for this episode, like that white horse feels like it's, it's like a moment where both Mike and Bob are kind of, you know, growing in their intensity to this reveal that happens. And so perhaps that's part of it. You know, maybe that was some of the direction that he got was, mm-hmm. hey, you need to turn the intensity up, you know, throughout this entire episode. Same, you know, we assume it's happening inside of Leland as well as Bob is, is emerging to, to finally come out. I don't doubt that at all. I think when Lynch was directing, I mean, he just had his own style. Every director does, of course. But who is, I forget the actor who plays Hank Jennings. Uh, um, but you know, we interviewed him and he said that, you know, when Lynch directed it, there was just a more of an edge to that character. The character's kind of goofy in other in other episodes, but when you see Lynch direct, he's a force to be reckoned with. And so I think, you know, Lynch just sees the characters in particular ways, and then he wants to accentuate certain characteristics about them and bring those to the front. 
So I, I, I don't doubt at all that I think maybe what you're seeing, Joel, is, is that aspect of Lynch's direction and the way he's directing Al Strobel in, in, uh, in these scenes. Why do you guys think he collapses when Ben walks in? I mean, that's just... I mean, other than being a red herring. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's, herring, it, I mean yeah. that's really it, right? It's to make us all think, okay, it is Ben Horn because obviously Mike collapses and so he, he's overwhelmed by the presence of Bob. But, you think there's uh, an in-world explanation? Well, I wrote about it a long, long time ago. That the implication you would have to say is that Leland is also close by. We just don't see him. Because mm-hmm. he was there the night before. But, you know, he seems like he's sick. And in the script, it seems like he falls and Cooper asks Ben Horn to give him a room. Which it was, it's funny because we see him fall and the next episode, all of a sudden he's in the, he's in the great northern bed there. And it, it never made any sense to me. But I guess in the script, they say he's sick and he needs, he can't even leave the great northern. He's so sick, they need to find a bed for him. Yeah, there's a deleted scene where, I, yeah, he falls down and then they, are, they pretty much press Ben to, to provide a room for him to recover in and uh and so that's how he ends up in that room that you see him in in the following episodes when cooper goes to visit him mm. um it, yeah it, it, it you know i at the time i watched it way back in 1990 i didn't even think anything of it but when you think about it you know in retrospect why was he in the great northern and not in the <laughs> hospital but right. <laughs> whatever they had that set, that's the one they were going to use cooper's keeping so. him hostage he's like i still need information <laughs> from you. But, right 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 yeah, yeah. keeping hostage in the great northern they use the hotel as a hospital and the roadhouse oh, as a court yeah, exactly yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> and then the next scene we have maddie saying uh, goodbye that she's going to be leaving soon to the palmers and i you wonder if this is what really set leland off like is this what's going to basically get him to do the final act here in the episode is because maddie's decided she's leaving the house or leaving town yeah i thought so i don't know what the motive to kill maddie would be other than she just looks like his daughter well, there's no motive for Bob. I mean, Bob is the evil that men do. Bob, right? I, I guess after Firewalk with Me, you can argue that he's gathering, you know, Garmin Bosia from her, mm. the pain and sorrow. Yeah. But uh, in in the you know in the confines of what we know in the show, Bob is. I mean, he's just a demonic thing, right? Yeah. Now, uh, yeah. And then you get into the question of whether or not it's Leland's motivation to do it and not mm. Bob's, and that's really where it gets. Yeah. What would Leland's motivation be to do it? I don't think um, Leland would have motivation <laughs> to do it at all. Personally, I don't see Leland knowing what he's doing at all. So it would be a Bob thing. And you're right. I don't think there is no mo- there is no motivation really. It's just hey, I have an opportunity to take this because he does try to kill Donna. The, yeah, she- that, so, so I think that if you were going to assign a motivation to Leland, and this is a weird motivation, but what happens after this episode and the episodes that follow is that Leland is almost wanting to be caught. He's got the body in the trunk. Mm, you know, yeah. he almost kills Donna. You could argue that Leland knows that um, he's got to end this somehow. Mm. And to end it, he needs to be caught. And so he's doing these, these radical, you know, dangerous things. He's, he's not really covering his tracks. It, it's a bizarre motivation. I'm going to kill someone so I can be caught. But you do see some evidence of that in Leland that he, that maybe Leland is, you know, trying to send some signs uh, to be caught. I like that. In the uh, sheriff's apartment, when he holds the picture, the drawing Bob, he's holding it under his nose. He's like, like right on you're the killers under your nose, folks. I oh, that's killer. good. That's really right. good. Yeah, I knew this yeah. guy. He, he was he was at my, at my grandfather's uh, summer home or whatever it was. Right, right. right. He's like, <laughs> and he's holding yeah. it like right, right, like that. But you're right. Like I never looked at it that way, John. I mean, that's a great take because I took it as Bob became emboldened and became <laughs> careless. So he's emboldened. He's careless now. He's he he's almost to the point of like. Well, you can get away with this. No one's going to find out. That's how I, I viewed it. The way well, you were saying, I like that more because there's a you could you could say you on. could say it's both, right? That Bob is emboldened and Bob does this radical thing and he kills Maddie, and then Leland is at that point like, okay, I I've got to be caught. I've got to somehow, right. or I've got to tell people I'm in trouble. Uh, because yeah. I can't control this anymore. So that's why the Donna thing happens. That's why the, the body in the trunk thing happens. 
Yeah, I, I like that, John. It, it holds so, together, but you know, you got you got to work at it a little. One alternate point of view is the relationship between Mike and Bob, which I think is one of the more interesting aspects that that we don't explore a whole lot in seasons one and two. But perhaps you know, Mike being this almost moralistic element of whatever Bob is, you know, I cut my arm off and my arm you know lies separate from me and it's judging me this emergence of mike from philip gerard is essentially the moralistic element of murder you know it's mm. uh nietzsche always talked about the criminal who has the courage of the knife but not of the blood that comes after it and so if you could look at mike as the courage of the blood you know that's the results of the of the murder that we do what if that element in the relationship between Mike and Bob essentially forces Leland to confront himself and essentially get himself caught, you know, at that point. Is it an element of self-correction like the double having to come back in after, you know, 20 years, 20 year, 25 years or whatever it is, right? I, I don't know. I, I, I like to look at things in terms of the, what we see on the screen and we have to put their relationships together between Mike and Bob. Can you elaborate a little on the distinction between the, the courage of the knife and the courage of the blood? So That's the killer who, who kills and runs away without okay. seeing the, the results of, of their crime, you know, okay. but then there's like the Jeffrey Dahmers who literally eat <laughs> they're, oh they're victims yeah. after they murder him. You know, that's a different kind of, of killer, I guess, right? Yeah, more cold-blooded <laughs> in a way. At the risk of getting somewhat complicated early in the show, I'd say there are kind of two things that I think come into question when we think about the relationship of Leland and Bob and who's responsible and why they're making decisions. And the first is kind of the viewers, what we make out of it, because so much is open that it is somewhat left to our interpretation. And then the second thing is what, if anything, the creators intended, and if we can kind of read a logic into the work that's that's operating in the work. So for that first part, I think for me personally, it's always, in addition to other questions, which I'm sure we'll get into later in the show about uh, Leland's part in this and why that would matter and why it matters in relation to Firewalk with me afterwards, just even dramatically, I think it's it's often more interesting for me to think of Leland and Bob as kind of almost like a Fred and Ginger dance couple where there's a relationship there where they both need or want something and are kind of in tandem about it. Like they're in sync. One gets one thing maybe somewhat, the other one has another and it's like operating on the two levels at once, which is a very Lynchian thing to do. And uh, for me, I think Leland killing Maddie makes a lot of sense because if you look at all of his crimes, they're all, cri they're all murders committed because he can't control a young woman. Mm -hmm. uh, that's certainly the case with Teresa. And he even says to her before, he, you know, early on, he says, who am I? And she says, I don't know. And he says, that's right. And obviously he wants to preserve his reputation identity, but there's also a power dynamic there that he's clearly relishing where he has all of the authority and the knowledge. And when she flips that on him, that's when he kills her. And then with Laura, it's when she's beginning to confront him and telling him, stay away from me and I know who you are, that he then takes her and ends up killing her. And with Maddie, this is the day that she's told him now she's going to go home, she's going to leave him. And he <clears throat> has come to sort of rely on her as this surrogate replacement Laura there's almost maybe a sense, especially because he was abusive as a father, that, oh, maybe I can do it right this time. I can have young woman in the house and we treat each other with respect and she cares for me and I care for her and everything's wonderful. And you can see in his expression, the moment she tells him she's going to go home that morning, all of his dialogue is, oh, yes, yeah, so that's okay. And I understand, but there's a sort of a tension there in Ray Wise's performance that he is not okay with this actually. Mm. And to me, yeah. that's directly where this murder comes from. She's exercising her independence. And I think Christy Desmet talks about this in her essay, The Canonization of Laura Palmer, which is in the book, Full of Secrets, wonderful essays about Twin Peaks published in the mid nineties. And she talks about this idea of the independent young woman and the father in this sort of patriarchal society exercising a kind of violence against somebody who is supposed to be subordinate 
and is showing that she won't be. So I, I think there's a very strong element of that here. Uh, you know, Maddie has another job. She lives in another town. She has a whole life and they've made her part of their household, but now she's, she's going home and that's just not allowed. You can't mm-hmm. do that. And he even says, he mocks that desire of her to go home because the last thing he says to her is, Leland says, you're going back to Missoula, Montana and smashes her head into the painting that has Missoula on it. Like, oh, you want to go home? Here, I'll send Mm -hmm. you home. That's the only way you're getting home from this house. So that to Mm -hmm. me is the Leland aspect of it. And then for the second part, what the creators intended, if anything, I know sometimes... I think fans and viewers don't want to hear it. I don't think they knew what they were doing most of the time. I think it was very (laughs) spur of the moment, very on the whim. I think that's one of the reasons there are so many contradictions in the, Mm -hmm. in the text itself, because they were making it up as they went along. And you can have one writer come in on one episode and push it one way. And then another one come in on the next episode and maybe push it a little the other. So you have Leland doing all of these things that don't always make total sense uh, in relation to one another and in terms of what his relationship to Bob is supposed to be. There's not a tremendous consistency there. And I, I think in some ways that could be frustrating. In some ways it kind of makes it a fun for people to kind of try to fi- figure out a way that they can give it a sense of like emotional logic, if not necessarily uh, logic logic. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, I wanted, I wanted to just add one quick comment to what uh, Joel is saying. It's just an aside, really. I agree with, with everything he said. I, I think that, well, I don't think they were totally making it up as they were. Right. Yeah, there they, was some planning. <laughs> there was planning. And I think when Lynch came in, in any episode, and in mm-hmm. this one included, uh, they didn't quite know what he was going to do. So yeah. Suddenly, there's a white horse in the in you know in the living room, yeah. and then, you know, why is there a white horse there? And Lynch didn't really know <laughs> for sure what. But 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 that all that aside, uh, that 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 scene where Leland is sitting on the couch and Maddie tells him and um, Sarah Palmer that she's going home. Uh, there's a very interesting way Lynch frames that and, mm. and positions Leland. And if you go back and look at that. Uh, scene again. Leland is sitting in front of a drapery of curtains that are bunched up and then they spread out uh, toward the ceiling. So they're, they're kind of contained in a knot and the knot is right behind Leland's head. So if mm-hmm. you see Leland sitting there behind him, you see this, this almost like fireworks display of drapery blasting out of his head as if mm-hmm. there's all of this energy coming out of him. Mm-hmm. I've gone back and looked at a lot of way Lynch frames things. He does that many, many times where he'll put an object behind someone's head and that uh, object is, it either connects that head to someone else's head. He does it in Fire Walk With Me between Chet Desmond and um, Sheriff Cable. There's that big saw on the wall and it connects the two characters. Hmm. Um, And in this particular scene, you've got this display of uh, energy kind of radiating out of Leland's head. So it's just, it, it's, it's an interesting way that Lynch is sort of signaling to us uh, something's going on with Leland. Joel, I totally agree with what you said about, you know, violence against a subordinate who's kind of showing some, some signs of independence. Do you think that Bob as a host entity would view that as a weakness or as a strength inside of, of uh, his host the fact that they want to control yeah it's almost like a weakness that leland has yeah i agree i agree yeah it's like ironically his desire to be in control is makes him kind of vulnerable to a larger evil a larger web of evil that bob can exploit i think this is another thing we get some mixed messages about on the show the the concept of bob he's called killer bob literally in one of his first Mm -hmm. Billings and Mike talks about him as like a partner there, and that comes obviously from the European ending and how Lynch initially thought of it. <clears throat> Bob going around like just killing people willy nilly, but I I think the vision of Bob we get from the Secret Diary that Jennifer Lynch wrote, and at times more and more through the series and Firewalk with we is in some ways more interesting, which is that he's less interested in the killing part than the abusing part. Mm-hmm. He's more interested in the pain the fear, what is it, the fear and the pleasures or whatever that he gets from like continually 
tormenting someone rather than just killing them right away. So it's almost like, at least with Maddie, uh, and you know, you can ask to what extent it's always true, but like in a way with Maddie, he's kind of along for the ride in that sense, where the this energy is rising up in Leland and Bob is there to feast on it. And you you could kind of make the case that in some ways, maybe, you know, to the extent Bob exercises agency or whatever within Leland or pressures him or pushes him like, um, you know, like a parasite sometimes does, then it, maybe it's to get out of him and get somewhere else because Leland's kind of cracking. I mean, he even says that he's weak and full of holes or whatever in episode 16, there's like this sense that, you know, his usefulness as somebody to continually torment people with is going away. Now he's just kind of killing people who are trying to kill them left or right. And maybe that's not really Bob's game. Well, I mean, it's the difference between a tapeworm and a cancer, right? A tapeworm tapeworm Mm -hmm. wants you alive. It does not want you to die. It wants to feed off you forever and ever. Whereas whereas a cancer is different. And so I guess in my frame of mind, just kind of putting everything in perspective from season three as well, is Bob already targeting his next host? Mm. Like, is he actively pushing Leland into an emotional spot where he's going to get caught He's going to end up dying so that Bob can now detach and start to navigate towards a new, more stable host mm. who, you know, is going to be Dale Cooper and, and ultimately has a much more significant control over his emotional landscape than, than Leland did. I don't know. It's just, mm. I, I like to think about yeah. it in that perspective. I love to look I up like a contrast that. between those characters and, mm. and also the extent to which the doppelganger, because they do, at times set him up as a different character, but it's like he's almost most fascinating as what John has talked about a number of times, this idea of like a part of Cooper split off from the rest. And actually we're getting way off track now, so I don't know if you want to cut this out <laughs> or not. It. But no, I love I, it. I've been really intrigued lately and in trying to sort of figure out a way to kind of incorporate it into my videos coming up. This idea of like almost Mr. C is a parody of Mark Frost and Dougie is a parody of Lynch. Like the two <laughs> creators of Lynch. But almost like, do they see each other? Like, does Lynch look at Frost and see him as this kind of brutal narrative, you know, gotta keep plotting through the plot points or whatever. And does Frost look at Lynch and see him as this kind of childish spirit wandering through the world with all these good things happening to them? Like, I, yeah. that's obviously a little over the top. And, you know, but it is funny to think we're almost getting like not just self portraits but like the collaborators portraying each other in like different halves of the <laughs> See, it's like the ultimate diss track and then yeah, exactly and they made it together i love that <laughs> yeah <idea>. yeah <laughs> well in the next scene uh, uh, hawk he, he's gone to harold's uh, place finds the secret diary and uh harold smith is dead he's hung himself and uh, I thought maybe this would be a good time. There's a deleted scene I'd like you guys to listen to. Interior, Harold Smith's apartment. Day. Knocks on the door. Mr. Smith? Mr. Smith, it's the police. Open the door. Mr. Smith, we have a warrant to search your apartment. The doorknob turns. The door swings open. A beat. Then Truman, Cooper, and Hawk pour into the room, weapons drawn. The room has been ravaged. Smith's diaries, torn and tattered, lie in a pile of paper in the middle of the room. Truman and Cooper look across the room at the greenhouse. Smith's legs suspended swinging. He's hung himself. Cooper and Truman look at each other. There's a note taped to the window. Cooper reads it. Je suis un homme solitaire. I am a lonely soul. Forensic field men at work, sifting through the pile of torn and savaged papers in the center of the room. One examines the window looking into the second room. Truman supervises. Two paramedics wheel out a gurney. Harold Smith's remains, bagged. Cooper enters, leading a haggard-looking Phil Gerard, the one-armed man, still in his mic stare. Cooper raises a hand, stops the gurney, gestures to Gerard. Gerard puts his hand on the bag, closes his eyes. The working cops stop and stare. Was he here? Bob never lingers after death. Was he here? Gerard shakes his head. Bob has not visited here. Truman rolls his eyes. Cooper nods to the paramedics. They wheel Smith out. Gerard, unsteady on his feet, seeks refuge in a chair. Truman takes Cooper quietly aside. Think this is a good idea? In front of the men and all? 
Harry, we're at the chicken soup stage of this crime. How's that? It couldn't hurt. That's something people say back in Philadelphia. Truman produces Smith's wallet. We're trying to get a hold of Jacoby in Hawaii. Smith was a patient. Was the agoraphobia for real? Did he ever go outside? He was a class A nutball. That much seems clear. Blood type? We'll have it soon. Truman glances back at Gerard. Wouldn't hurt for Jacoby to get a gander at this guy either. Looks a little green around the gills. It's not easy being Mike. Cooper nods, moves to him. Would you like some coffee? Mike? Gerard shakes his head. Hawk unearths something from the large paper scrap pile, moves with it to Cooper. Take a look at this. Cooper accepts the damaged object, opens it. This is the diary of Laura Palmer. Yes. When I watched it back in the day, I really thought Harold Smith might have been linked to the whole Bob thing. I thought maybe he had some kind of connection to the other world. So it was good that they cut this out because it makes it more <laughs> ambiguous yeah. not knowing that. Well, I you think know? Harold does, does a really good job as the keeper of secrets, right? I mean, not, yeah. not only his own secret, but most importantly, Laura Palmer's secrets. Mm. Um, and that role is fulfilled in this in this episode. He reveals all of her secrets as well as his own. I think they were potentially in this scene planting seed for more of a plot line to happen. Even though Harold Smith is dead, the idea that he was Dr. Jacoby's patient, we know that Harold was afraid of something. You know, there was something he was afraid of out there. And the implication is that, you know, it's not, it wasn't just simply that Harold was a, you know, um, a shut-in and, and had a, a phobia. There was an implication that Harold knew of something going on out in the world. And I think maybe they were thinking, well, we'll this is a way to keep Dr. Jacoby in plot line, too. They're always looking for ways to serve this very, very large cast. Mm. And it was, it was getting harder and harder to do, to have something for everyone to do. And <clears throat> this might have been a way to keep Jacoby involved in the plot. And Jacoby could reveal what he knew about Harold and what Harold, you know, maybe find out the secret that Harold was holding and what it was that he was afraid of. But I, they just, well, and who knows, maybe Lynch was just like, I don't have time for this. I've got this other stuff I've got to do in this episode. We basically don't need any of it. Or it could be that um, they were, they thought, well, we don't know where we're going to go in the plot. And if we need to bring this back, we can, but we don't have to plant the seed. Let's just skip over it. Yeah. So, so you can see, you can see, so it happens a lot of the cut scenes. You can see that they were thinking this might get expanded and then it gets cut and it never does. And then we have Audrey talking to Ben Horn about, you know, One-Eyed Jack. I think we should definitely talk about the Audrey and Ben Horn scene. So All right, I, let's do that. <laughs> this caught me yesterday really strongly as I watched it. I mean, we're 2020 now. We are a year out from Jeffrey Epstein and all of that craziness that happened a year ago. Uh, and it's and it's still going on, and it hit me. I actually tweeted this. Ben Horn is essentially Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, oh he my has, god, he has Gosh. trafficked. He has trafficked yeah, totally. girls. He has, right. you know, I mean, it's wow. a horrible, horrible crime. And I don't feel like it's 2020 coming back on 1990 and saying, you know what, you really shouldn't have done that. I just, I think it's something worth talking about that. Yeah. Essentially glossed over this horrible, horrible thing. The parallels, Jeffrey Epstein had a female who was helping him. 100%. Blackie. You look at, that, yes, Blackie is helping him and there's drugs involved, underage girls. He gets to have first dibs on the new girls. It is very creepy. And I think it, also, you look back and it's a, a reflection of the times. That was acceptable on TV back then. That was okay back then to make sexualize a, someone younger and nobody bad an eye. Uh, nobody cared. People cared, but it was it just seemed like it was normal. People laughed at it. It was entertainment. But you're right. It is something worth talking about because it's I, I, things have changed for the better. And uh, you don't see something like that on TV unless it's very dubious. It's very dark. And Twin Peaks is, you know, it's not, it's, it's on ABC. I mean, it was quirky right. and it was a little bit dark, but I mean, it wasn't like an HBO 10 o'clock show. I mean, that's a plot line for like, you know, True Detective. I guess my thought was, does Ben Horn deserve uh, a, a happy ending? <laughs> yeah. uh, he, should be, he should be in jail well he does change i mean okay if, in, in a weird way i i don't know but he does change he does have redemption in season two where 
he he has a breakdown, and obviously we he starts. He's eating vegetables. He's drinking milk. <laughs> he wants to take care of his daughter. He wants to set her up. And he won and the he, civil war. Yeah, he won the <laughs> civil war. Yes. Um, yeah, but I mean, speaking of things that speaking of things that yeah, look different in twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. He did have a redemption where he he changed. You want people to realize what they did was wrong. You yeah. want people to change. You want people to be better for a TV show like this. I, I think it's great to see Ben Horn redeem himself, want to do better, step away from all that. Season three, and, and Jerry's talking about, oh, who's that girl? And it, the girl to me is almost like the new, yeah, he even says the new girl. Who's the new girl who's the second yes. And he's saying, Jerry, let's have some respect here. <laughs> right, right. I think everybody deserves to change and to be better. And as long as it's coming from the heart and it's, for good all that, I think you're dead yeah. on though, Josh. I think, I mean, I really think Ben Horn set up this uh, perfume counter thing and it was him who decided to, you know, we're going to have unicorns we're going to give to to young yes. girls and yes. let's go to cross the border and uh, miss yeah. you. And he had wow. sex with Laura. Like, I feel like, you know, yeah. There, there, yeah. there is no Leland is the killer and Ben Horn is innocent. Mm-hmm. It's Ben Horn is very guilty. And yeah, in yeah. the corruption of Laura Palmer, as well as multiple other girls, almost his own child, you know. You know so like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a great. That's I think the closest they come to holding Ben accountable in some way because I agree they do they really really drop the whole idea that he's a human trafficker because he gets arrested. They know he owned One Eyed Jacks. Yep. And then it's like, oh, he didn't call Laura. You can go home and run your business now. It's like, wait, wait yeah. a second. This is like an international <laughs> criminal. And you're just, because right. like, that's one of those areas where you can really see the show to my mind. Because I think it's interesting to give him a, re- or try to give him a redemption arc, but they never really, like they have him have a dramatic downfall in the sense that like he loses, you know, his mind and all of that. But in terms of like, really kind of holding him accountable for anything they just You're kind right. of gloss over it like it's kind yeah. of on to the next thing and we got yep. to move on with our story and it's like totally. well wait a second guys you just you just set this up as like a really <laughs> large scale thing and now you're telling me that they just like the fbi and the police are like sending him home like wait a second yeah and the fbi should not be sending him home like it is the <laughs> fbi well, like if it was fair, a t- yeah the, the fbi should also not be taking disabled people and denying them medication oh, and almost killing yeah. them if we go down that route all I kinds know, of uh, i know Oh, yeah. open up. <laughs> One last thing too is that like would Ben Horn still be doing it? It was only Hank who said you're out. He's saying, you know, you're no longer gonna be running the uh, uh one-eyed jacks. Would right. Yeah, he, he didn't want to leave. He never gave yeah. it up. <laughs> it was given uh, up for him. Just like with right. Ghostwood. The only reason he's fighting it is because Catherine owns it now. Josh, all I have to say is I did not put these two together and now that's it's, it's hard done. to watch it. <laughs> it's hard to separate the two now. You know, John, I think you, your work on Audrey right now is going to be interesting here because I feel like this is the scene where they take Audrey and Cooper's relationship out of the context of just kind of this hero worship thing. And now it's a sexual crime. Like she's she's telling Cooper that my father committed a sexual crime against Laura Palmer and many other people. And yeah. that kind of elevates their relationship to a different level hmm. in this episode. Yeah, I, you know, that's definitely worth, uh, I've got, I'm right in the middle of writing about Audrey right now, and it's, the, it's one of the hardest things I've written in, in a while, but um, that aside, and I, I hate to sound like a broken record, because everything you're saying is, is uh, you know, I agree with it completely, but this sort of speaks to the tension that you find, the dynamic you find in trying to make a network television show. Mm. Um, and it, maybe this goes without saying, but when they scripted Ben Horn and back in the pilot and in, in, in season one, he's a bad guy. I mean, he is. He's a bad guy. And I don't think they saw the future, or, you know, we're going to redeem him. Um, they didn't know what was going to happen to him, but he was one of the bad guys. And he does these bad things. He's part of this whole organization that's uh, doing terrible things with drugs and 
and prostitution. And but then you know the show gets renewed and they've got a cast. It's the same thing I was talking about with Jacoby, and they've got to find things for these characters to do. And so that's where reality goes away and television reality answers the picture. And so it's like, what do we do with Ben Horn? Well, we'll 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 somehow we'll rehabilitate this character and he'll become a good guy. Just to sort of add to that, when they went back to make Firewalk with me, they had a scene scripted for Ben Horn where he gives, I think he gives Laura Palmer cocaine. Uh, he has, he's in his office and, you know, Richard Beamer said he didn't want to do it. He, he, mm -hmm. he was not interested in playing that character. And I think as time went along in the second season, Beamer, you know, became comfortable with his character and didn't want to go back to that first version. There's essentially two versions of, of Ben. You, mm. um, there's sort of a reset button that gets pushed. It's, it's impossible to reconcile that, that one, the first Ben would have transformed into the second Ben. You almost have to say, well, it's just a new Ben. It's just a new Ben Horn. You know, it, it, uh, the character of Ben Horn is still being played by Richard Beamer, but it's now uh, a different Ben Horn. And so, so anyway, I mean, it sounds like an excuse, but it's really just the reality of the situation. I think nowadays, with the kind of television that we see and the writing we see and, and the attention we see to characterization in good television, it would be, you, you know, the writers, they would kick the writer out of the writer's room for saying, well, what we're going to do with this character is, yeah, he did all these bad things, but he's going to have a mental breakdown. And when he comes back, he's going to be a good guy. You know, it'd be like, no, he's probably going to have to pay for this somehow. Mm -hmm. Either mm -hmm. he's going to die or he's going to sacrifice. That will be the good thing that he does. He will recognize his bad ways and sacrifice himself. But, uh, but you know, this was, this was, this was, ABC network television drama and you know it, it, Twin Peaks just never fit there and it was pushing up against those boundaries all the time those boundaries kept pushing it back and you get these weird things that happen mm -hmm. so I mean I totally agree with you Josh it is creepy and it's it's unsettling but you know it's network TV and, and so it's thrown peaks. away it's not, it's not and, the only and, thing and creepy some, and unsettling in Twin Peaks and in some <laughs> way and this is for another podcast Twin Peaks The Return is sort of addressing the idea of this artificiality of a television narrative and saying, you know, yeah, that existed, but did it really exist that way? Maybe it didn't. Maybe that's the story you know, and now we're going we're gonna to layer that into a more realistic here I am, more realistic, you know, when a bomb blows up and a thing spits vomit out. And, but do you know what I'm saying? I, mean, I, I think do. Lynch and Frost were aware of that artificial nature of telling, uh, certainly Frost was, of telling stories on network TV. And there are many, many instances in the news series where they are commenting on that kind of storytelling and, and in some ways critiquing it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's fair. One thing I've been noticing a lot when I watch it lately is what an interesting contrast it makes to the scene where Maddie tells the Palmer she's leaving the uh, Twin Peaks. And, you know, Leland has that kind of fake genial response, but you can feel the tension and especially the way Lynch shoots it with the camera panning across the room and the record player like slicing off their heads basically in the shot and the uh, dissonant kind of, uh, Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World in the background. There's just something very unsettling about it versus the way he shoots Shelly telling Norma she has to leave and she's crying and Norma is just completely understanding, embraces her, you're welcome back. It's like mm. a sincere version of what the Palmer facade was. But like, you know, this is actually like the, like Norma actually means it, you know? Yeah. And it's just, I think it's one of those interesting contrasts Lynch makes between sort of genuine feeling and people who aren't really committed to whatever they're, they're saying or trying to pretend they believe. Interior, Sheriff's Station, day. A weak and pale Philip Gerard sits in the reception area, attended to by Doc Hayward. The plumber, Mr. Zipper, is on a ladder working on the nozzles of the sprinkler system he's in the middle of installing throughout the station. A couple of steaming cups of coffee are carried into the conference room where Truman and Cooper are seated at the table. Wearing surgical gloves, Cooper is paging through the diary they found at Harold Smith's. Open beside him is the original diary they found in Laura's room. Cooper compares the two, takes a sip of coffee. This is Laura's handwriting. 
Why would she keep two diaries? The one we found earlier was a record of events on the surface. This one apparently tells the story of her inner life. The answer may be in there. Undoubtedly. It's a shame. Mr. Smith saw fit to mutilate about 45% of the contents. Hawk enters, carrying an evidence bag containing some torn scraps of paper. This what you're looking for? Precisely. Cooper opens the bag, takes out the scraps, and examines them with a magnifying glass, comparing them to the second diary. Truman turns to Hawk. Those are the scraps you found near the railroad car. Hawk nods. Yes, this is where the scraps came from. Cooper opens the book towards the end. Look at this. He points to a section torn out near the end of the book. Smith already did a job on this thing. No. Look at the way the pages are torn clean, ripped out at the roots. Smith ripped and slashed his way through, like the others we found in his apartment. And look at the edges here at the back, yellowed and curled. Nine pages. They were taken some time ago. By Smith? By the killer. The day she died. Truman takes the book to examine it. Before she gave the book to Smith? Unless I'm very much mistaken. Doc Hayward appears in the doorway with news, a piece of paper in his hand. Excuse me, fellas. What was Harold Smith's blood type, Doc? Doc is used to this by now, reads the note in his hand. Oh. The night Laura died, Harold Smith never left his apartment. Agent Cooper, just so you know, Gerard is refusing to take his drug. You mean Mike? Whatever his name is. He's getting weak and unstable. I can't recommend we let him go much longer without his medication. Truman reads from the diary. Oh, my lord. Oh, my lord. Harry? Truman reads. He can come into my mind. A man who can slip in and out of you like a wind that goes unnoticed. It just struck me that his name is a warning in itself. B.O.B. Beware of Bob. Hawk, bring the cruiser around. Harry, bring the diary. I'll get Gerard. We're taking him to the Great Northern Hotel. That's when in doubt, go to the Great Northern Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did clarify that, that, that he wasn't taking his drugs there, uh, Mike, Phil, Gerard, and I guess that's what's making him react the way he is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There's the answer. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then, there, I mean, I do love that the pages come back into season three, this whole missing pages. And I can't keep track of how many really, I mean, here in the script, we're saying nine pages were taken. And then we found some some uh, in the pilot, in the railroad car. I think there were some pages found. But it's, I love that the story kind of continues that there were these missing pages. You know, I was when I was reading through John's section on wrapped in, wrapped in plastic on this, he mentions that this is the moment where the original investigation essentially ends for Cooper and now he's put off on a spiritual investigation to figure mm -hmm. out what the hell this host thing is. What is Bob? And I feel like that's a pretty big thing to cut out when they talk about this, this character, like a wind that mm -hmm. comes in, you know I mean? Mm -hmm. It's still, it's still really esoteric on how they reveal what the nature of Bob is, but this is in black and white. I mean, it just says it right there. So to pull that out was a pretty significant cut. Yeah. To pull yeah. which part of it? The the part where it says Bob is like a wind, you know, and oh, okay. beware of Bob. Now, did that right, ever right. come back in the beware of Bob piece or it just stayed cut? It's in the Jennifer Lynch book, ah. I think. That's the only place I've heard it. Got it. Right. Cooper's very on the nose with everything. I mean, with the pages and with Bob, it is almost too on the nose. Like, he's like, he knows everything. You think that's very, why they cut it? Yeah, I that's, I mean... The, the whole pages, pages thing, you I don't know if you really know when these pages would be ripped out without forensic evidence of maybe fingerprints or something. But it's like, no, I'm, I'm fairly positive. And yeah, knowing that Bob can slip in and out, that's a, yeah, that's a big thing. It's a big mm -hmm. thing to just stay, to say out loud. Do we know from season three what those pages look like when they were torn out and we see them on the table. I feel like they were clean cut, but maybe yeah. I'm just reading, maybe I'm just reading that in from memory. They seem I pretty clean. I think you're right. When Hawk gets them out of the bathroom there, they, they didn't seem, uh, they didn't seem jagged. Like, yeah. They weren't Harold Smith jagged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They weren't Harold Smith jagged. <laughs> well, in Fire Walk With Me too, when we see, her leafing through, you see it's a pretty clean cut that he made, like from the diary side of it. Interior, Great Northern Hotel Lobby, day. A police presence in the lobby has created quite a stir. Deputies are shepherding an interesting mix of hotel guests, one by one, past Gerard, seated front of the fireplace. 
Included are the members of a high school marching band, each holding their instrument. Gerard, pale and sweaty, scrutinizes each guest as they are brought before him, shakes his head, and they move on. Cooper and Truman stand beside him. Cooper stalwart. Truman exuding a healthy skepticism. Doc Hayward is nearby, keeping an eye on Gerard. Soon she Tojimura is shown to Gerard. Gerard shakes his head. Under a head of angry steam, Benjamin Horn makes his way down the corridor. As he eyeballs two visiting fishermen in Tyrolean hats, Gerard starts to hyperventilate, trying to loosen his collar. Hayward moves to him. Doc, give him room. I can't. I can't. Behind them, the elevator doors open as Ben Horn strides toward the scene, reaching them just as... My arm. My arm. Gerard passes out. Let's get some room here. Doc Hayward turns to Cooper. This has gone on long enough. What's the meaning of this? Sheriff? What's going on? Why are my guests being hounded like this? We're done here, Mr. Horn. Cooper speaks to the milling crowd. Thank you all, ladies and gentlemen. If everyone would please just go about your business. We've got to get him to a bed. Mr. Horn, could we have the use of a room? Does he want a check-in? A look from Cooper asks a favor. Horn complies. Points. Down the corridor, Horn moves to the front desk to retrieve a key. Cooper speaks to Hayward. Is he all right? He needs his medication. Truman speaks to his deputies. Come on, fellas. We better carry him. They pick up the limp Gerard and carry him off down the corridor. Cooper collects the key from Horn. How's Audrey this morning? Tip top. Cooper takes the key and follows the others. Horn moves in a different direction. I'm trying to remember in the show, does does uh, Mike say anything about his arm? He he definitely is reaching in that. In the Great Northern, he does. Does he say arm, yeah. In Final Rock, we learn that the arm is actual the little man from another place, that it's maybe the bad part of him. Oh, oh Dougie's God. arm tingles. <laughs> when, we, when we first meet Dougie, his arm is tingling, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. But I like that, that it explains more of how he, why he's still in the Great Northern, because he fell and they felt they, they should just give him a room. And, but I understand <laughs> he to move things along, and he probably felt like we, we didn't need it. My guess is, once again, it's just another scene that Lynch was able to kind of abridge, and he, he, you know, he's saving his time for the long fourth act. And so mm, some of these yeah. kinds of scenes, as interesting as they are, and there's certainly, you know, always interesting stuff in all of these, you know, I think they saw, and certainly Lynch was like, you know, I can, I can just sort of skip over this. It's either implied or we kind of cover it in some dialogue later or whatever. And I, I mean, it's very possible that some of this was shot too. I think in some cases, some of it was not shot. And in some cases it was shot. And then when they had to edit it down to 44 minutes, they were mm. just stuck. They were just like, right. you know, Lynch shot a 62 minute episode and they didn't have, they only had room for 44. And so they cut it out. Yeah. So um, anyway. Does anyone really think it's strange that, you know, this man collapses, they've got to get him into a stable condition and Cooper takes a moment out to ask about Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> I just find that really weird uh, that that's the beat that this scene ends on. I mean, Cooper is <laughs> he's very quirky. I mean, he could be looking at ducks on the lake and then talking about some kind of serious murder mystery. Yeah, I know. Very, very true. Very appropriate. To be continued next week. Thank you.